Welcome to Meet the Cast at the Apple Store Soho in New York. Please welcome this evening's moderator, Matt Zoller Seitz from New York Magazine. So we're we're prepared to re-enter the world of the Nick, which begins its second season on Cinemax. Um, if you're here tonight, that show needs no introduction, but I'm going to provide a brief one anyway. Uh, set at the turn of the century at a time of medical discovery in a New York City hospital that is underfunded, understaffed, and overworked. Uh, this is one of the most kinetic, exciting, unusual dramas on TV right now, and we're very, very lucky to have three cast members from the show with us, uh, and I want to bring them out now. Lucy Elkins, who is played by Eve Hewson, is with us. And then Dr. Algernon Edwards, who is played by the marvelous Andre Holland. And last but not least, uh, Thack, played by an actor who I fully expected to arrive by vaulting over a balcony, because uh, he's so dashing, Clive Owen. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, I guess I would start by asking, did, uh, did you arrive by car, by carriage, on horseback, or how did it work? <laughs> no. Is there, um, is there any truth to the, uh, to the rumor that you have no time to stand on the set of a Steven Soderbergh production? He, that he moves yeah. that fast, yeah? We don't have any chairs. There's one set chair that's there on the, in the surgical theater that everyone sort of hovers over. And people sit down, and they don't let the girl with the corset sit down. It's literally, he, he moves so quickly that you go, you start the day, you walk onto the set, it's so concentrated, so focused, you never, ever get time to go back to your dressing room, or he literally, once you start the day, he's kind of on it, and he wants everybody there, and you just drive through the day. What are the advantages of working that quickly? And just to put things in context, a typical... Uh, drama, television drama, takes between uh, 12 and 14 days to make an episode. And the Nick usually burns through it in like seven, I think, right? Some, something like that. I mean, they're making 75, uh, they shoot for 75 days and they produce 10 hours of television, the equivalent of five feature films. Um, and I, I can't believe that the three of you aren't just taking a nap right now. You must still be exhausted from that. Um, but what are some of the advantages of working that way? Do you ever miss having to take a, being able to take a break or a breather? Not at all. I mean, I, to me, that's one of the best parts about about working with Steven is that you you know you turn up to work and you and you go. So you have to prepare ahead of time, you know, very specifically, very very thoroughly, and it it makes it feel almost like doing a play. You know, there's there's no time no time really to relax. It's just you just go. You make your choices and go, and it makes it exciting and fun. And you know, we have a great time doing it. Are you in costume all day long? Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, they put a plastic poncho on me at lunch. <laughs> I look really cool. What, uh, what sort of uh, preparation, physical or, or in terms of research, did you do to get in the right headspace to play these characters who are not of our time? Is there anything you have to bear in mind or remind yourself of? Well, you know, personally, my, my character Thackeray is based on a real doctor called William Holstead, and there was a book called Genius on the Edge, which was about this guy who was a brilliant doctor at the John Hopkins Hospital at the turn of the century, who was being brilliant but consuming vast amounts of drugs. 
and that was the inspiration for Thackeray. And there's a whole number of books that sort of spin off that about this group of doctors at the time, because at the turn of the century in New York, it was a hugely exciting time in medicine. They were making huge advancements very quickly, and that was kind of the inspiration for the whole show. And there's a, there's a lot been written about what was going on then. I had actually looked up a little bit on him, and he was apparently uh, was using cocaine as an anesthetic, and got hooked on it, and then what did he move Well, in the, in the time of the, sh the, the show was set, for seven or eight years, cocaine was completely legal. They thought it was a new wonder drug, and they were trying it out in all sorts of ways, and eventually people developed what they called cocaine frenzy, which some people still get today, I've heard. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, but it was completely legal. They thought it was a wonder drug, and then they didn't realize for some time that it can have enormous consequences. And then he segued to morphine, I think, right? Or something like that? Yeah, there are literally stories of him walking out in the middle of operations. He'd be in the middle of surgery and just walk out and disappear and someone else have to take over. He would go for four weeks sabbaticals and just disappear. They didn't know whether he was recovering from drugs, taking more drugs, and, but he was brilliant at the same time. Now, I wanted to ask you a little bit about the, the operations that are performed, which as you know, if you've seen the show, they're quite graphic, quite brutal, and, but, and the instruments are, these are real, not real necessarily from the period, but they're all very realistic from the time, aren't they? Yeah, they're, they're, yeah, not they're all, they're all, we have a, we had a, a wonderful medical consultant, Dr. Stanley Burns, who has on the Upper East Side a four-story brownstone that's covered, you know, floor to ceiling, wall to wall with medical journals and instruments, and so he was there with us every day that we did one of the surgeries and made sure that all the instruments were accurate, that everyone was standing in the right place, behaving in the right way, so everything you see is pretty, pretty spot on. I, I got to visit the set for a day, and um, I learned a lot of things that I didn't know before, and one of them was that um, Steven Soderbergh, when he's shooting the cast, he's actually in there with the cast, and he's moving around like almost like he's an actor in the scene, and part of, that, what, part of what that means is that when he's showing you doing operations, you have to actually sort of plausibly know what you're doing, right? Like, they, he does because he doesn't have time to cut to the hands of somebody who's faking the operation there. Well, I have to admit that when we started, I was convinced that we would do so much and then he would get hand doubles in. I was just convinced because we're, we're playing genius doctors who are doing these operations, but I would say he never did any of that and he just shoots it so specifically in a way that kind of helps us out. We have to know what we're doing in terms of handling instruments and have the right rhythm to everything, but nearly everything you see is kind of what was happening in that room. It's not been treated or, or things haven't been done afterwards. So if Steven Soderbergh says to you, Clive, make an incision along the left ventricle, you could actually, you'd go like, oh yeah, over here. I say, Dr. Burns, show me how to do that. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Um, the the blood, the the gore, all of that stuff is that um, pr that's obviously prosthetics, right? They're not going to a butcher shop and asking, "What do you have today?" No, no. Although the pr the, the the bodies that we use are, they look and feel so real that sometimes you wouldn't know the difference. The first time we did it, I, I would say, you know, we all turned up, I think, expecting it to look kind of real, but then once we, you know, got into it, it was, it actually turned your stomach a little bit once all the blood started flowing and Stephen was calling for more blood and more blood. Um, but, you know, but eventually it just kind of became a part of the day's work. We did so many of them and spent so much time in that surgical theater that, you know, people would come and visit and be grossed out and we kind of laugh at them, but. Yeah. 
What is it like just sort of being in that zone where you're, you're shooting a scene, you're shooting an operation, you're shooting a, an intense conversation scene, and you don't have any breaks, you're going for two hours, for three hours, and Steven Soderbergh, the way he directs, I just, I can't get over this because I've never seen anything like it. He's sort of planning the thing while he's shooting it, and he's only shooting what he needs to edit it, and then he edits it at six o'clock when they wrap. He edits it in the limo on his way home, and then he goes out to dinner, and he posts it, and you guys watch it? I, we don't get to watch it, but if you sweet talk the hair and makeup people they'll give you the password <laughs> but he doesn't know that we have it uh, but yeah he will go to location um, and he'll be like get in the van and you'll sit behind him and he'll just be editing the scene that you just shot on the way to the next scene uh, and he's making up everything as he goes. I mean, you'll go in and you'll think you're shooting your scene, first scene and then you'll, you'll go on to the next, but he'll put all three scenes in one, in one tracking thing and um, he'll just be like, yeah, go say this to that person, go say this to that person. Okay, yeah, and we're all just going to do it in one shot and in one take, okay, and, and don't fuck it up. Okay, bye. <laughs> you're like, okay. How is, it different, how is it different working this way than the way that you usually work where you're moving at a slower pace and often you don't see what you've done as quickly as you do here? Like, what effect does that have on you as actors? I think that the kind of genius of him is that, you know, he's incredibly organized and together and disciplined and has this incredible team around him, but he does kind of shoot the edit, but he thinks on his feet. So he arrives in and he kind of gets inspired by what's going on around him, what the actors are doing. And he'll sit and he'll watch a rehearsal a number of times in a number of ways. And then he'll go, right, give me, and he starts to find his way through it. So he doesn't come with a pre-storyboard. Like he, he's very alive and thinking on his feet and he gets through every day like that. And you know, there's an awful lot of very talented directors who would storyboard everything and make sure that they knew what they were going to do every day. And he comes in totally open and alive and thinks on his feet and does it at huge speed. So there's never any moments where he's saying, now, you know, stand there, go a quarter inch to your left, make once sure he the eye... Once yeah. he starts working out the shots, yeah, he looks at a scene a number of times. He lets the actors do what they do. He moves around, he looks from every angle, and then he starts to find a perspective and a way through the scene. And then he might just modify a little bit what you're doing to suit what he's going to do with the camera. But um, it's all very alive and in the moment. What is the set like? Can you describe it? The principal set of the Nick, it's all kind of continuous in the way that you see on the show, isn't it? You can, you can walk around in it, and can you, can you describe the environment and, and just sort of the feeling of it? I mean, it, how would you describe it? I mean, it's, it, first of all, it's so much fun. You know, you, you, you walk in, and it's a, it's a massive warehouse, and you can walk around from room to room, and the detail that, they have, that they've you know, put into this set is astounding. I mean, things that you never actually see in the show, like the crown molding around the ceiling or the ceiling itself. I mean, the, the details are so, so specific that, you know, as an actor, you walk into it and you feel like most of your work is already done, you know? You sort of just step into it. What, what, what are you thinking? Yeah, it's also because he comes from independent film. It's a very, sm feels like a very small crew, even though we have a huge production. So you can be shooting a scene and, it might just be you and another actor, Steven, and a few other people. And it doesn't feel like you're working on this big 
show you know that's why I get confused when people have seen the show I'm like wait what you've seen this though there was just something that I made with my friends but I mean there there you know there are some scenes that me and Clive did that it was only Stephen in the room you know it's a very close um personal relationship that I mean, we all only have with Stephen him. in the room like there's no lighting people there's no, no nobody well he lights so <laughs> well there you go yes yeah. yes yes is is there um is there any point during the process when you when you um, kind of lose track of where you are because it's moving so quickly? I mean, do you always feel like you're you're centered and you you know what the plan is, or are there times when you're it's just too fast? There's too much going on. The, the, I mean, it is you know fast, but it's incredibly well organized. So you know the plan of the day is laid out beforehand, and when you're actually in there and doing the scenes, you know we move very quickly, but we know very clearly what the intention is every day, and it works like clockwork. The team he has around him are so disciplined and so organized, and uh, so you you know what I did for the first season and ended up doing it again for the second season was, I had to have a whiteboard of, you know, he shot all 10 hours like a 10 hour movie, not episodically. So we would jump around. So if we went to my home, I would shoot everything for the 10 episodes while we were in that house. And I thought that was okay when I started until we started and I realized that carrying that much is very difficult. Um, so I had to have a whiteboard with a list of scenes, a list of episodes, just to have a visual graph of where we were at any given point. So that you could, you could, a you could answer questions like, how high is Thackeray in this scene? Or yeah. how angry is he? How many drugs is he on? Does he need drugs? <laughs> Has he had too many drugs? Can, can you tell me about the, the um, developments in the new season? I don't want to ask you to spoil too much, but where... When people uh, come back, what can they expect to see? What, what kind of notes can they expect to hit, and what's different this year? I would say that overall, you know, the show, instead of going broader, goes narrower and, and deeper into the characters that people have already come to know. We learn a lot more about people's pasts. My character has a, a few secrets that sort of get revealed throughout the season as does Lucy's character and, and all the characters. You just, they get more, more layered, more complicated. And, Overall, if you can imagine, I think the show is actually darker this year. In fact, Steven said not long ago, he said that season two makes season one look like a romantic comedy. So, <laughs> But also, I think that the, you know, one of the biggest differences is much more scale. We go outside of the hospital much more and we see much more of New York at that time. So I think everything that he learned and everything that you know, we, we got from the first season, he used everything to then start to spread out. So we get a much wider social view of what was happening in New York at the time. What's, where, did you, where all did you shoot? What sort of environments did you shoot in? Are you, are you you're in New York or do you leave New York? The, the hospitals um, um, based in Brooklyn, the sets are all in Brooklyn, all those sets. But we literally, this is how organized they are. We went into Chinatown for real and blocked off a little corner of Chinatown and turned it into 1900 version of Chinatown. We went to Yonkers, we went, you know, we, we went everywhere. What were you doing in Yonkers? Wasn't that the house? Being yes. very cold, it was the winter. <laughs> <laughs> we actually shot season two, we started shooting February. So we had to shoot outside in the freezing, freezing cold and a few extras went to hospital, right? There was one guy that went to hospital. Um, it was very cold. And Stephen doesn't put on a warming jacket because he wants to be like 
cool like the actors. <laughs> um, <laughs> so everyone was just like shivering and yeah. He, he wanted to get both you know, the winter, he wanted two seasons so we, we could go outside towards the end of the shoot and get the nicer weather and we also wanted the, the, the winter weather as well. So this whole business of we shoot continuously for two or three hours and isn't this great for our, our mental concentration, like I guess that, that's not quite the same thing if it's 20 degrees. No, uh, one guy was like, I think, you should, I think you should get up and put on a jacket and he was like, it's fine, I'm just going to use it. <laughs> I was like, like, I think you're going to hospital. Do you, um, are there any rules about the costumes? Like, you, you know, you, you talked about how you have a, not a bib, but a something they put over oh, I have a, a poncho. Yeah. Oh, I have a poncho at lunch because they don't want me to spill on my white uniform. Um, yeah, you think that's really funny. <laughs> um, what else? Do we have oh, any rules? Any, no. Oh, are they antiques? They're not, a, none of them are antiques, right? They're all, they're all fakes or do you have any? you know like real stuff from the era I think they I think all the jewel the jewelry was built I think actually for the ladies and then I know all the suits for the men were, were built mine were built by uh, a guy called Martin Greenfield out in Brooklyn a tailor who's been there for yeah, I think he did decades. all the men's yeah. Yeah, yeah he's incredible incredible yeah but I, but yeah I mean they made the clothes and they gave them to us and we sort of were allowed to do what we needed to do to but we we had a really wonderful special costume designer and you know I I remember going back and doing period things in England when I was younger and you would get a costume and you say oh, I'm not sure about it. and they go no that's what they wore that's I'm sorry but that's just what everybody and Ellen was very different Ellen kept very faithful to the period you would put something on and then I would go do you think I could and she said you're Thackeray. You can do what you like. You're, you're, you're a wild man. <laughs> now, is it true? In fact, uh, she, the costume designer told me on the set that um, you actually had a, a, a suggestion about the shoes. No, it was her suggestion. She it was, said it was you. No, it's not true. Um, I went to the first fitting, and she said, I've had a pretty wild idea. What about Thackeray in white boots? And I love the idea, because there's something uh, you know, a little wild about the guy. I'm very arrogant. And uh, Stephen told me afterwards that she'd pitched the idea to him and he's like, I love it, but I don't know how Clive's going to react. But I thought it was great. Well, what she told me was that it was your idea to wear them to the, uh, to the opium den that we see in the first scene. The, the, shot, the very first shot of the first episode of The Nick is your shoes in the frame. Like, what was the, the reasoning for keeping his shoes on all the time, those white shoes? Because they were great. <laughs> And the sunglasses, yeah, the, with the blue lenses, are those? Yeah, do, do I, people they, really they were wear period. Those? They were period sunglasses. Yeah, I mean, it's one of the things that I think is unique about the show is that we're so used to seeing period dramas where people live this very kind of, you know, life sitting around in drawing rooms, and we feel like we're looking into another world. We feel like it's a sort of version of life that is from you know somewhere or something else. And the thing about the Nick is. It's a very visceral thing. It's a, it's, a, it's a show that makes it really, you really feel what it might have been like to be living in New York at that time. And for a lot of people, it was a very tough time. You know, life expectancy was low. It was tough on the streets. It was a scary place to be. And most of the time when we see period dramas, people live in these very privileged worlds and sort of, and we think, oh, that looks nice. But that wasn't what it was like for most people. And I think the Nick has a real broad spectrum of what life might have been like. There's a question that I like to ask actors who, who appear in period pieces, and, and I'll ask it to you, which is, do you believe that people 
think and feel more or less the same way now that they did in the period that the Nick takes place in? Or are there ways in which they are simply different? And do you account for that when you're playing these characters? Do you give any thought to, is this right for, is the way that I'm acting, the way I'm feeling, the way I'm comporting myself right for 1900? Or do you not have time for that? Or is it too instinctual for that? Well, I think if you're dealing with human emotions, it's the same. There is no, there's no period version of feeling pain, loss, hurt, love. That's, you know, that will be the same always and has been the same. And I don't think there's a period version of feeling. But are there body language things that, that, you, that might be different depending on the circumstances? I mean... Well, yeah, there were certain ways that women weren't allowed to sit. They weren't allowed to show their ankles. You know, they were in a corset. They had to sit a certain way. So that you have to take into account. Um, but I think the whole point is Stephen just wants people to feel like, like they do today. And, and it's, you know, it's not supposed to be some sort of reserved, you know, proper way of feeling. It's, it's emotional and it's... It's real to, to everyone. When you see the scenes put together, is it always what you thought it was going to be? No way. I had no idea what was going on in season one. <laughs> what do you, how do you mean? I mean, I just, you know, it's hard to sort of... Stephen is a very unique brain, and, and I don't think anyone could predict how, how genius he presented this world. And... and um, even though you know we'd had a lot of conversations and I, I had an idea for what he was going for, I couldn't imagine the way um, it finally and uh, ended up being, you know, with the music and and everything. So I think going into season two, everyone felt a little bit more comfortable with you know what he was going for and and knowing um, what the final product was going to be. Yeah, he's always surprising. I remember I remember in season one, in episode seven. There, which was one of my favorite episodes, there was a scene where, you know, they're pushing me under the gurney through the streets and, you know, they're arguing, trying to keep me concealed. And I remember reading it. I mean, I read it probably, you know, 40 times in preparing for it. And I thought on the day, well, this will be a chance for me to just relax, take a little ride, you know, I won't have to do any work today. <laughs> and sure enough, we started shooting it. And all of a sudden, Steven got down underneath the gurney with me with the camera right in my face. And I was like, man, what, what are you doing? <laughs> he was like, no, no, action, roll it. And I thought that was my scene. I was like, this is my moment. Why is Andre stealing this scene? What's going on? That's really what happens. Do you have a lot of moments like that where you go, wait a minute, I thought this was my scene? So many, and so many moments where you don't think it's your scene and you're chilling and he's like, oh, I'm going to change this and you have to learn a monologue in two minutes and we're going to do it all in one take. We actually have a, a clip here that I think might give us some insight into some of the things we're talking about when we talk about how Soderbergh directs. Um, the scene um, actually with Lucy, um, if we could call that up. Look, you're a quick and clever girl, and I like that. But when will you stop being clever and give me a chance? There's no shortage of not-so-clever nurses around here, all hired by you, who've already given you a chance, and then some. But you're the one that has me intrigued. You already have men courting you. You hesitated. I'm going to take that as a no, which tells me I shouldn't give up the chase. Then tell me, Mr. Robertson, do you believe in God? Do you read the Bible, go to church, and lead a Christian life? 
You're hesitating. So I'm gonna take that as a no. Which tells me you should most definitely give up the chase. That's, that's a wonderful scene and it's also another thing that jumps out at me is that there's almost, there's like four or five shots in the whole scene which is not the way television is done, it's not the way movies are done now. Like he, he and what, you know, what, does that, what does that do for you? Is that all in the interest of pacing or is there something that happens in performance when you do that? I think there's a, you know, an element with Stephen that separates him from an awful lot of directors is that he has such a clear perspective. He never just shoots an actor talking. He doesn't just look at a scene and go, well, that person's speaking, that person's speaking. He looks at a scene and thinks, what's the most interesting way of telling this bit of the story? And sometimes it's not covering the person talking. Sometimes it's, you know, it's doing something else, but it's a very, very clear perspective. And, you know, we'll do some of those operation scenes sometimes in one shot. Like, he will find a way through the whole scene because he thinks that's the best way to tell the story, to feel the drama of it, to get the, the pace and the urgency of it. And, you know, he always has a perspective. He'll never just shoot a scene just to cover it. I saw the shooting of an operation scene when I visited the set, and it was very much like that. And I got to watch on a monitor for two hours as, as Steven Soderbergh directed this scene. And blocking and blocking and blocking the camera and the actors and he's like let's start with a close-up and then let's end with a close-up no that would be boring if we end with the same shot let's go back and it, it almost felt like i was watching somebody paint and and the actors were participating you guys in this act of painting the picture too it's it seemed very active yeah yeah, that's what it feels like. I mean, it, you know, as Eve said before, he's right there with us the entire time. So it, it you know, in the first season, I think we all felt a little bit nervous because we didn't quite know how he was going to work. But once you, once you understand that he's he's trying to find a way in and he's trying to find a way out, and that it's up to you know, it's a sort of a dance between the actor and and him. Um, we we actually have one more clip. I hope we have time for this. The um, uh, the one with Algernon Edwards, which I think illustrates a little bit this dance idea that we're talking about. Despite being understaffed, the surgical service has been able to average over 40 surgeries per week with no increase in complications and an 18% decrease in mortality. Also, we have added several new procedures, four of which we have perfected ourselves. When will Dr. Thackeray return? The news I've received indicates that the man is in no shape to return and likely never will be. He seems lost to his addiction forever. If that ends up being the case, I would like to put myself forward as a candidate for the permanent job as chief of surgery. So again, that's all one shot and not only is it all one shot there are people talking and you don't see their faces and he does that a lot and he's not afraid of that and like you know you're used to that but tv is not normally made that way no and you know what you have to recognize is just how kind of courageous that is because you know the reason directors do a lot of coverage is because it gives them lots of options they can change the rhythm of a scene they can it gives them, you know, endless choices later on to try and fix something, alter the rhythm. 
what he does is he shoots and very often he has no choice whatsoever. It's what he's done in the room, in that moment, and that is the scene. And that takes a lot of courage. He's deliberately denying himself the chance to go back and change his mind. That's terrifying, I would think, when there's that much money at it's stake. A, it's a 100% commitment in the room, but the guy is very smart and knows what he's doing, and he backs himself. And there's no, I mean, in that scene that we just saw, there's no uh, extra angles in case you walking around the table doesn't work out. No, not at all. And we, you know, we, I didn't know that that's how we were going to do it until we turned up and, you know, it took a while to figure it out. But once we did, it became clear that's what we were going to do. But again, he, you know, the thing he always says is that he doesn't believe there's any reason to make anything any more complicated than it has to be. So he finds this sort of essential version of a scene. And I think that's what, as you say, makes it most powerful and potent because that's what's happening in the room on that day. What is the fewest number of takes that you've ever shot for Steven Soderbergh? One. Lots of times. <laughs> really, lots of times. So he'll just roll it and you're like, how is that? Fine. And you're... you're yeah, and you can cut like the how is that fine part may not even happen. <laughs> yeah, it's called being Soderberghed. You think you're, you're going, this has happened to me a lot. You're in the middle of your first take. You're going, oh, this really isn't the one. This really isn't the one. Oh, God. Oh, God. And then he's like, yeah, great. Move on. <laughs> and that's the take that they use. Have you ever had a moment where you, sit, where you see him picking up his camera and moving along to the next set? And you're like, wait, wait, wait. Can we please do it again? That, yeah. Yeah. I have... There was a big scene that I had at the end of season two. It was my last shot, and it was long. And uh, we did it all in one take, this big, long monologue. And he said, okay, you're done. And I said, please, can I do one more? And, and he was like, fine, Eve wants to do another one. And we did it again. He looked at me, he goes, yeah, that one was better. I was like, it must be terrifying to work in such a subjective art form. Like, you, ha you may have a feeling of how you did in a scene, but you're not standing outside looking at yourself, so you don't really know. And you have to just, I guess, just trust, trust the, the director to, to get it right, but, but not only in focus, but that your performance was good. But that's the case of working on film. It's a director's medium. It's not an actor's medium. If you want the control, then you go and direct. An actor offers up for a director. That's it. That's the reality of the job. I think uh, maybe we could open up the floor to questions. Yeah. Hello, uh, Clive. I was surprised in season one. You discovered the clinic and you threatened to shut him down. And then in the next episode, it was like maybe a month later and it was discovered, it was during the riots, that you had been helping him, you had delivered babies. How did you be get, get on his side and support him? The thing about the show that is, I think, that separates it from a lot is that it's incredibly well researched and the writers really, really know their stuff. And in terms of the sort of, you know, we have to depict what life might have been like for people in 1900. And there were no black doctors working in any hospital in New York at all. And it would have been a complete disservice if you know, it was made to look very easy for that to be possible. Um, what happens in our relationship is that I give him a very, very tough time, realize that he's brilliant and maybe as talented as me, and then everything changes because the bottom line is we're about saving people's lives and forwarding the world of medicine. And 
I realize he's, you know, he's one of the best around and it changes everything for me. Would you, you got anything to say about it? No, no, I like what you said about me, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, hi, uh, before season one, uh, before you actually started uh, doing your roles, did you feel pressurized to uh, immerse yourself with any uh, medical terminology? Was it like, oh God, I got the part, now I have to get textbooks and start studying before they ever collaborated with anything? Well, I'm not a doctor. But we did have our medical advisor, Dr. Stanley Burns, sort of run us through, he gave us sort of a crash course in that time period. Um, and there was books we had to read and we had medical school and you guys can talk more on that because you actually did something. I just handed instruments <laughs> and just yeah, sponged I mean, there were, things. There were, there, were, there were about two weeks before we started that we had access and time with Stanley Burns. And so he took us through each of the surgeries and sort of explained exactly what was happening, why these procedures at this time were you know, so important and so sort of groundbreaking. And then on the day when we did them, he was there, as I said, with us to make sure that the words we said, were, we were saying them right, we understood what they meant, and you know the instruments were all being handled right. But I think... For sure, we definitely did as much as we could to immerse ourselves, not only in the medical knowledge, but also just in the sort of circumstances in New York at the time. We read a book called Low Life, which uh, you know really sort of informed the world. So we, we did and continue to do a lot of research. Yeah. This uh, person that we're talking about, Stanley Burns, um, is he's on the set during the operations, and he's almost like he's like a reality check there, right? If you're not, if you're not doing it right, um, he he can step in and say, "You got to do that over." Yeah, and he, you know, he's hugely knowledgeable. And Stephen defers to him and says, "Is this correct?" You know, the the one thing that we, we've had an incredible response from doctors who have seen the show, both for the research and how thorough it's been done, but also just the approach to all the operations. And you know, it's incredibly well grounded. We've never we haven't put anything in it that is sort of just a flight of fantasy because we think it makes good drama in this kind of show. It's all been inspired by real things in New York at that time and what was happening in the world of medicine. Uh, first of all, you guys did an amazing job on it. But I, I had a question about the music because I know Cliff Martinez did the music for it and it was very electronic oriented, but it really went really well to set the tone. But how did you guys feel after seeing it, all your work and the music involved in it? How did it sort of go? I think the music really brought the Stevens whole idea of the Nick together, the fact that he wanted to have this sort of, you know, pulsing, vibrant, modern take on, on a period drama. And we hadn't, I, I had never heard the music until I saw the show and I just thought that it was perfect and it, it, it kind of tied everything together. Yeah, I mean, it's a period drama and we wanted to do everything we could to sort of blow the dust off of it. And I think the music is wonderfully like, you know, anachronistic almost, but really exciting and, and uh, really helps sort of make it feel modern. Hi. Um, one of the things I really enjoy in any production is emotional authenticity. And um, in characters that you play that have a deep, intense emotion, what does it take as an actor to, to put yourself in there and what does it take to come out of it? 
Well, you, I mean, you've just explained what acting is, really. That's what we do. You know, that's you know, we do that. And, you know, I think everybody has a different approach to doing it and everybody has their own methods and own, you know, personally, I think for me, it's, you know, it's about enormous concentration. You have to put yourself into a mindset. You have to feel it. You have to be as truthful as you can be and then, you know, come out of it. I, I won't say that, you know, 10 hours of playing Thackeray doesn't take its toll. It does because he's a very kind of wired person that, you know, and it's challenging and you're doing it day after day and it does take its toll and it takes time to sort of wind down after finishing shooting something like this. But, you know, at the end of the day, for me personally, acting is about severe concentration, get into a room, focus and try and be as truthful as you can. Hey guys, I just want to know, do you look at New York differently now that you've done this, this 10 hour movie, so to speak, and then 20 hours? Are you walking around New York looking at different places and thinking back like what it was 100 years ago? Absolutely. I, th I think one of the things that Stephen said to me at the very beginning is when, when I do this show, I don't want anyone to feel nostalgic about living in 1900 New York. And you certainly wouldn't want to have been ill, that's for sure. But, um, but um, what I love about the show is it shows, you know, that life was tough for a lot of people and that New York was an incredibly vibrant place, but a very dangerous and kind of edgy. And there are contemporary comparisons to that. We, we don't present the show as if it's this, you know, uh, other world. It feels a living, breathing thing. And I, I feel that, you know, we should be very, very grateful that we're living now because things are, in some ways, a lot better. Hi. I'm interested to know what you modeled your accents on in the show and how you practiced those. I have a dialect coach. Her name is Kelly Calhoun, who I've been working with since I was at NYU. She was my voice and speech teacher there. Um, so I had been working with her on my auditions where I had to do an American accent for a while. And uh, I, sh her and I sort of chose a town in West Virginia that my character was from and we, we looked up old um, recordings of women. We couldn't get women back in the late 1800s, but we got as early as we could get. And I listened to women talk about coal mining um, and their husbands dying in explosions and all these kind of things. And I just spent about a month, I think, working on the accent, and then she was with me on set. Yeah, for me, I mean, the character that I played, the, the speech was sort of a reflection of his circumstances for me. Um, he's a guy who's, who's caught in between two worlds. He doesn't quite fit in in the black community. He doesn't, clearly doesn't fit in, in at the hospital. And so I think his, his speech is reflective of that, a person who wants to be accepted, who's very careful about the way he, the words he chooses and the way he delivers them, um, which I think is, again, just sort of an external representation of the, um, the pent-up frustration that he's experiencing. Um, I, I did this, I worked with a, a great dialect coach called Tim Monick, who is, I've worked with a number of times and he has, you know, we have a process together. He'll go out and we'll discuss the kind of accent that we want to do and then he'll get a number of recordings of different people and we'll hone in on a sound that we think is right and use that as the beginning of something and then it's just about lots of work and practice, really. Um, I wanted to know what kind of research you did to properly depict a cocaine addict? Well, <laughs> well, where do I start? 
Um, <laughs> I, I used a lot of instinct and, and, and imagination. <laughs> Thank you for coming out, everybody. <laughs> Ha, ha, ha.